listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, as we make our way through Holy Week, we come today to Maundy Thursday, and we're following along kind of in real time with Jesus and his disciples during these last days of his life. Thursday, of course, is the evening of the Last Supper, where Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, also instituting communion for the first time. But we can't fully understand the Lord's Supper without first understanding the cross, And so since we don't have a Good Friday service, I'm going to talk about the cross here tonight. That's going to be our focus. So the the text I want to read to you is from the Gospel of John. Uh, It's chapter 19, starting at verse 1, and then going ahead to verse 30, but I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit here. But John 19, beginning at verse 1. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, And lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Lord Jesus, we can never thank you enough for all that you did for us on that night so many years ago. God, the immense suffering that you felt, both in your body and in your soul, was all for us, out of your great love for us. And Heavenly Father, as we, we hear about that word tonight, I pray that we would be comforted in knowing that your word continually speaks to us. God, you don't remain silent, but you speak, and you have words for us to hear tonight. So I pray that you would speak them. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, one of the most remarkable things about the Christian faith is its logo. 
the cross. Everyone knows what the cross symbolizes, regardless of your age, race, or culture, right? Crosses are everywhere, both inside and outside of the Christian church. We gild them in gold or silver and craft beautiful earrings and necklaces out of them. We inlay them with jewels and adorn our homes with them. We even put them on Hallmark cards, maybe a whitewashed, picturesque cross floating through the, cl the clouds with like a, a, a light, just a whitewashed, uh, scenic light kind of emanating from it. But that's not what the cross is about. See, the cross was an instrument of torture and death. In the ancient world, it would have sent a shudder down people's spines just to think about it. In fact, in our modern day and age, we rarely witness death, much less a public horrendous crucifixion. And that's why the Apostle Paul refers to the cross as a scandal or a stumbling block. The, the Greek word here is literally scandalon. It's a, it's a scandal. As one source says, it causes revulsion and re results in opposition. This may sound a little bit crass, but for someone in the ancient world to wear, to wear a cross around their neck the way that we often do today would be similar to us as modern-day people wearing an electric chair around, around our necks, an instrument of execution. Rather than being a venerated religious symbol, the cross was the lowest of the low, the kind of thing reserved only for worst, the worst criminals, the scum of the earth. As J. Christian Beaker notes, the cross is the most non-religious and horrendous feature of the gospel. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, biblical scholar Fleming Rutledge explains, she says, the cross is irreligious because no human being would have projected their hopes, wishes, longings, and needs onto a crucified man. If there had been high-definition news cameras present at Golgotha 2,000 years ago, and if they had captured Jesus' crucifixion in all of its gory detail, chances are they wouldn't be able to re-air that without extensive censorship. The cross was something utterly ghastly, unspeakably revolting. And to be honest with you, if you're anything like me, it's something I would prefer to shield my eyes from. But we do so at our own peril, because if we don't look unflinchingly at the cross, we downplay the awfulness of our sin. The cross has always been and always will be a stumbling block. It's ugly, it's bloody, it stinks, it's revolting, and it's why so few churches today are willing to preach, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You've heard it said before that all religions essentially say the same thing, right? Well, the cross is probably the greatest argument against that. The cross makes Christianity unique in a very strange sort of way. As one speaker shrewdly notes, 
Quote, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. See, the physical suffering that Jesus endured both before and during his execution is enough to leave most of us speechless. First of all, Jesus was under extreme emotional and psychological distress. After the Last Supper, supper, somewhere around midnight, he and his disciples, they retired to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And at this point, Jesus was in utter anguish. The Scripture tells us that he was to the point of sweating drops of blood. His sweat became like drops of blood because the anticipation he felt for what he was about to endure culminated in this the biggest soul struggle of his life. Then he was betrayed by Judas, one of his twelve closest companions, and hauled before the Jewish authorities for an all-night interrogation. They blindfolded him, mocked him, spit on him, and punched him in the face. False witnesses testified against Jesus, fabricating lie after lie none of which, by the way, was actually legal. Councils were not supposed to be held in the dead of night. It's not how it worked. The witnesses should have been reliable and their testimony should have been corroborated. The whole trial was a sham. Evidence was proctored. Even the judge was in on it. And by the end, what do they do? They pound the gavel down and they pronounce the verdict guilty, sentenced to execution on a cross. They marched Jesus over to the Roman authorities, Pontius Pilate and Herod, since the Jews didn't actually have the authority to to carry out this sentence. Again, this is a religious issue, so really the Romans shouldn't have been dealing with it at all. But the crowd was so adamant that Pilate eventually gave in to their demands and he handed Jesus over to be flogged. Next, Jesus was stripped completely naked, and his hands were tied to a large wooden post. Roman soldiers would have stood on either side of him, armed with short whips. And these these whips were special instruments of torture. Because what they would do was they would weave in pieces of animal bone and metal balls into the lashes to inflict maximum blood loss. And the soldiers knew just how to use them. One author describes the results. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. And to add insult to injury, the soldiers, what did they do? They mocked Jesus, spitting on Him, placing a crown of thorns on His head and a robe over His already bloodied back reopening the lacerations when they tore it off again. After this came the march to Golgotha. Now, 
keep in mind, at this point, Jesus has already been up all night. Prisoners sentenced to be crucified were also forced to carry their own cross to the place of execution. Though a variety of crosses were used at this time, the most common consisted of two different parts. So you have the vertical piece. It's known as the the stipes. And this is the piece that was put in and, and kind of embedded in the ground permanently at the crucifixion site. Then you have the crossbar, which is called the the patibulum. This could have weighed about 100 pounds, and it's what Jesus would have carried. They they would lay this across the criminal's back, the criminal's neck and their back with their hands tied to it. But as we remember, at, at this point, Jesus was so exhausted and had lost so much blood that he didn't even have the strength to lift it. So they had to enlist the help of someone from the crowd to carry it for him. And once they reached the actual crucifixion site, after walking through all of the jeers of these bloodthirsty crowds, Jesus was thrown to the ground on his back, causing even more dust and dirt to enter his already infected wounds. And they would use these tapered iron nails, like five to to six inches long. Those were pounded through each of his wrists crushing his large median nerve that runs through the center of the arm. This would have produced intense, fiery bolts of pain and caused them to shoot through his body with every movement. The soldiers then lifted the horizontal crossbar onto the vertical stipes. And once the victim was permanently affixed in this way, each breath would have been excruciating. The only way for Jesus to exhale which we just do without thinking, was to force his body upward, producing searing pain in the nail holes in his feet against which which he was pushing. One author explains, he says, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia. Death was prolonged and could take anywhere from three to four hours to three to four days. Mercifully, in Jesus' case, he died in a very short time period, about six hours, likely due to the severity of the flogging he received beforehand. But you see, as bad as the physical suffering and the pain and the torture of crucifixion was, the shame was even worse. Every single aspect of the crucifixion process was deliberately designed to shame the victim as much as possible. And the goal was that by the end of the crucifixion process, the witnesses wouldn't even be able to recognize the crucified as human. Fleming Rutledge again explains... Crucifixion was specifically designed to to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. And here she says, crucifixion in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. You might think of it like this. Years ago in the Wild West, they used to nail coyotes to fence posts 
as a warning to intruders, right? Basically saying, look, if you trespass on our land, this is going to happen to you. This is how we treat trespassers. Well, that's a lot what the crucifixion was like, except with humans. Unlike modern day executions, though, which take place behind closed doors, usually with just a small audience behind a glass window watching, crucifixion was intentionally done in public in full view of thousands of people, as a warning against any would-be criminals. Like, people would line up to see a crucifixion the way that people today line up for twins tickets. The whole point was for it to be as much of a spectacle as possible. The bigger, the better. Birds even landed on the victims to pick at their wounds while they were still alive, flies buzzing around the decomposing flesh. There was no dignity at the cross. Jesus was fully exposed, literally. In all of the paintings of crucifixes that we see today, he's wearing a loincloth. But in actuality, he would have been completely naked. In ancient Near Eastern culture, where honor was attached to every part of the body, this would have been especially shameful. Every single part of Jesus was open and vulnerable to scrutiny and mockery. The most unimaginable obscenities and coarse jokes must have been hurled His way as He absorbed the worst that humanity could hurl at Him. The Son of God on shameful display for all the world to see. As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And the culmination of the crucifixion is that you weren't even granted the dignity of an executioner. Instead, you were your own executioner since it was your own body that eventually betrayed you and caused your death. There's nothing pretty about the cross. There's no dignity whatsoever there. Only shame on top of shame on top of shame. Jesus was shamed before God. Remember, even God the Father turned His back on Him, which is why He cries, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And He was shamed before humans, abandoned even by His closest friends and family. Now, why would I tell you all of this? Why mention all of these gory details? Just for shock value? Well, no. I mention them because if we forget the magnitude of Jesus' suffering, we'll forget the magnitude of our own sins that put Him there. Because, friends, the message here is that all of this was for you. He died in your place taking the punishment that you deserve. It was our sins that drove the nails. But here's something else. At the cross, Jesus didn't just suffer for our sins. He also suffered for the shame associated with those sins. 
we sometimes forget that. You know, every single wrong we've ever done has some amount of shame associated with it. Ever since the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, they grabbed the fig leaves, right? And, and they tried to cover up themselves. We too want to cover up our messes, to kind of, to kind of try to, to sweep our tracks up so no one will know where we've been or, or what we've done. There's the shame of the adulterer who slinks back home in the early morning hours before his wife wakes up. Or who clears his internet history so that no one will see what he's been up to. There's the shame of the drunkard, desperately trying to appear sober so no one at the next family gathering will know he's fallen off the wagon again. There's the shame we feel for the bad habits we keep running back to, the ones that we were sure we had kicked. There's the shame we feel whenever we talk about that one family member, the one we, we really just don't want anybody else to know about. There's the shame we carry around our necks for that thing that happened years ago that we can't stop beating ourselves up for. There's the shame we bear as parents when we continually ask questions like, where did I go wrong? Is it, is it my fault my kid turned out the way that they did? Am I a bad parent? Am I a good enough parent? There's the shame we bear when we crop and filter our posts on Instagram or Snapchat to, prevent, to present the best curated version of ourselves that we want everyone to see. Because if someone actually saw me, the real me, with, with all of my warts and flaws, they'd never love me, so I better hide it. Better get out the fig leaves and cover that up. The list goes on, right? We all bear our scarlet letters. But here's the really, really good news, friends. At the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed all of it. The shame, the disgrace, he took it all on his shoulders, even though he had done nothing wrong. He absorbed it all. With his arms stretched wide, he bore your sins and all of the shame and all of the guilt that go along with them. All of those times we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. All of the times you as a parent just couldn't keep it together and lost it with your kids. All the times you as a kid just couldn't keep it together and lost it with your parents. All those hurtful words you ever spoke to those you loved. That screw up from, from years ago that you just can't forget. The, the thing you can't seem to forgive yourself for no matter how hard you try. You see, 2,000 years ago, on a hill called Golgotha, Jesus opened wide His nail-scarred hands and He took all of your mess upon Himself. All of the brokenness, all of those sins and failures, whatever that scarlet letter is, He tore it off of you and He pinned it to Himself. He suffered and died in your place. He bore the cross, 
and he bore your shame. But not only did he take something away, our sins, not only did he forgive us, he replaced it with something else, something better. Yes, he forgives you, but also he gives you his righteousness in its place. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin who knew no sin, that that we might become the righteousness of God. See, it's a a two-way exchange there. Jesus gets our sin. We get His righteousness. It's done. It's finished. In Jesus' own words from the cross, all that's left is for us to believe it. And to trust it. So as we come to the Lord's table and we prepare for communion tonight, we have this wonderful opportunity to actually receive the forgiveness that He won for us. To receive the same body and blood that He shared with His disciples at the Last Supper. Only the blood of Jesus Christ has the power to wash away all the traces of shame that we carry around in the deepest cracks and crevices of our hearts. So as we come to the table today, may we do so professing our great need and believing in our hearts the beautiful gospel truth of that wonderful song. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.